Now let me ask you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 24. I mentioned we've got two more Sundays, today and next Sunday, uh, and we're going to finish our study of Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for standing already in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to begin with Matthew 24 and verse 9. A sense of expectation when we sing about the second coming of Christ. And now we're going to look at what the Scriptures have to say. Just a a small snippet of what the Scriptures have to say that we can expect about the second coming. It says, Then they will hand you over for persecution. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Then, the end will come. Father, we know that every day we live, that we're one day closer to heaven. We're one day closer to your coming. I pray that we would live every day like you died yesterday, rose today, and are coming back tomorrow that we would be ready. The truth is, you could come before this sermon is complete today. Lord, help us to be prepared. Help us to live like we're leaving. Live like we're on borrowed time. Making the most of every opportunity. Lord, if there is someone here this morning that needs to do something very specific to live like they're ready, I pray that your Spirit would convict them of that, show them what it is, and may this Word be a word of exhortation and encouragement to all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I titled the message this morning, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Some of you laugh because you're very familiar with that book, especially those of you who perhaps maybe have just maybe in the past few years brought your firstborn into this world. I remember, never forget when we found out that we were expecting Kent, our firstborn. And one of the pieces of advice we got from lots of people was, you, you need to go out and buy the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Because if you'll read What to Expect you're, When You're Expecting, all the things that begin to happen, especially to the mom. Isn't it interesting that we say, we are expecting? <laughs> and, and we are expecting, but it seems like that uh, mom has to deal with all that at first, right? What, what to expect when we're expecting? We're, we're reading that and making sure that all the physiological and psychological and emotional changes and everything that's happening is normal. Is this really normal? Because things can kind of be scary. When you are becoming a parent, things can be scary. There's joy, but there's fear. There's anticipation, but there are questions that we have when we're expecting. And there's lots of preparation that needs to be made. When we're expecting the return of Christ, when we live like we're leaving, when we know that He is coming back one day, we can expect some things. This past summer, I preached a message and those hot topics that we dealt with, those hot potatoes we dealt with, I covered basically a summary of the entire chapter, Matthew chapter 24, concerning the second coming. So if you want a lot of the details of the rest of the chapter, I want you to go to trinitybc.net and pull that sermon up and kind of get all of the details on the second coming because we kind of broke down all the signs that we've been observing in our world. Today I want to focus more specifically on what you can expect 
as a follower of Christ, just in these few verses that we're looking at, what can you expect when you're expecting the return of Jesus Christ? Now, the Bible is filled with expectation of what we would call the consummation of the ages. End times, the day is coming. Everything is leading towards something. We saw in this chapter back this past summer, and in fact, it's the verse leading up to this in verse 8, all these things... All these events are the beginning of birth pains. We're expecting, right? Birth pains. It's, it, 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 this period of sorrows is a time of, of preparing for something that's greater. So we spend our time trying to figure out where we are on God's timetable sometimes. We get bogged down in all the details, all the maps and, and charts and diagrams in the book of Revelation, and we want to know when Jesus is returning. We look at passages like Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, where he gives what's known as the 70 weeks prophecy of Israel's history. 69 weeks leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ and, and the period that we're reading about in the Gospels. And then there's a parenthetical statement, the time of the Gentiles. And then later on, there's the 70th week of Israel's history. So it would seem that that 70th week has yet to be fulfilled. Many believe, including myself, that that is uh, the tribulation period, that is the 70th week of Israel's history that's yet to be fulfilled. So I'm one of those that just happens to believe God's not finished with Israel, and we better be standing with them because God still has a plan for this nation. Many arguments exist over whether or not the church will be here during the tribulation period. As you read the book of Revelation, you see the church gathered in heaven, just what we were singing a moment ago. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. We see the church represented uh, by the apostles and, and the, the Old Testament tribes, the 12 and the, the 24 elders. We'll see a lot of imagery, and then it seems as if you can't find a mention of the church from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 in Revelation, but there are uh, descriptions of tribulation saints, and so people like to argue and debate, has the church been raptured out or has the church not been Raptured out at that point. I look at First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, which speaks of the rapture, because some folks will tell you sometimes, well, you won't find the word rapture in the Bible, and they're right, you won't find the word rapture in the Bible, but the Bible says in First Thessalonians 4, 17, that those who are alive and remain at the return of Christ will be snatched out or caught up in some translations, and rapture just means the snatching out or the catching up of God's saints, God's people. And then Interestingly, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians followed by chapter 5, which talks about that great and terrible day. Some say that day means the last day of the tribulation. I don't think that's the last day. I think it's the great and terrible day is the, the day of the tribulation itself. It's the seven years of, of tribulation. And so if I'm accurate, if I'm right with that, then the, the church will experience a pre-tribulational rapture and then... Christ will, will call us to Himself, and then we will come back with Him. Revelation 19 uh, kind of shows that coming back of Christ with His saints and bringing an end to Armageddon and all of the tribulation and everything that's taken place up until that point. But still, there are lots of passages. I'll just be honest with you. There, there are probably nine or ten passages in Scripture where I say it kind of sounds like a post-tribulational rapture. Other times it sounds like a pre-tribulational when I kind of weigh the whole of Scripture. I'm kind of looking for the upper taker, if you know what I mean. I definitely see within God's Word the imminent return of Christ, and we need to always be ready. But let me tell you two things to avoid when it comes to these arguments. First of all, avoid ignorance. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13, before he gets into all that, he says, I don't want you, don't want you to be ignorant about these last things and those who have, who have died in the faith. The world is deteriorating. Jesus Christ is coming again. The signs aren't to tell us when He's coming, they're to tell us that He's coming. And He is coming again. So avoid ignorance. Know that Christ is coming. But also avoid arrogance. God intentionally left many elements of the return of Christ unknown. As a matter of fact, He tells us the same in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. It's as if He's saying, quit trying to figure it all out. It's not for you to know, it's for you to get busy doing the work of the kingdom. In verse 11, remember that Jesus has ascended and His disciples are standing and they're gazing up and the angels appear and and they say, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up? And sometimes in our study of last things, our study of end times, maybe our study of the book of Revelation and other prophetic apocalyptic passages of the Bible, we're trying to get our charts and our maps and everything in order so that we can say, I know that this is when Christ is coming. Or I know that I'm going to be able to identify antichrist, you know. That's dangerous to get into that because Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. And, and we're not going to figure out who Antichrist is. Some of you today are, uh-huh, it's President Obama. No, it's Hillary Clinton. She's running for president. You remember back in 1980, we elected Ronald Reagan as president, and there were people who said, Ronald Wilson Reagan. All three of his names have six letters. Six, six, six. Antichrist has come on the scene as if he were going to come out of the United States of America. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think that there are enough Christians that are going to be raptured out of here that it's not really, uh, the United States is going to, not going to play a significant role in, in all that's taking place at that time, but it's starting not to look so much like that. The, the point of, by the way, the point of 666, and I know I'm getting off subject just a little bit, the point of all that is that it's the number of the man. It's, it's, it's perfect incompletion, three sixes. It means this, it means that Whoever Antichrist is, he's not Jesus. And and so the point is not for you to put everything together and try to figure out who Antichrist is. The point is for you to know who Jesus is so that when Antichrist comes on the scene, you say, that's not Jesus. That's the whole point of it. So if the body of Christ would spend as much time trying to get to know Jesus Christ rather than the Antichrist, then we wouldn't be in any trouble. So we need to get to know Jesus and realize that 666 was to show us that's not him, he's not Christ. Let's be sure that we know Jesus and the fullness of who he is. So, so avoid ignorance, but let's avoid agner, uh, arrogance at the same time. And a lot of times when we do premarital counseling, and, and whether it's me or Pastor Ben that meets with you, we're going to tell you something. Premarital counseling is not going to keep you from having problems. <laughs> it's not. It's not going to keep trouble out of your marriage. But we, the reason we do premarital counseling is to let you know what those problems are going to be ahead of time. We're just going to go ahead and... and, and, and let you know what the surprises are going to be. The reason we study what to expect when you're expecting is not to keep these things from happening. They're going to happen. It's to help us prepare for them, to be ready for what's coming. We need to know what to expect, what will involve us, whether, listen, whether the rapture is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or I like the pan-tribbers. They just believe it's all going to pan out the way God meant it to pan out. Listen, if, if you are one of those, some of you are like, man, I don't even think about the tribulation. But if you're one of those who think that the church is going to go through the tribulation, don't forget to live with a sense of expectancy that Christ could return any time. And if you're one of those who don't think the, that the church is going to go through the tribulation, 
live with an understanding you still may go through great trial and tribulation. Because if you were to go to believers who are being beheaded by ISIS in places in the world today and say, aren't you glad you're not going to have to go through the tribulation? They would probably look at you and say, we're in it. (laughs) How can it get any worse than this? So what can we expect? What can we know for sure? What do we really need to focus on? First of all, this morning, I want you to see that there's going to be an intensification of fierce persecution. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, we're all going to go through some type of persecution. As a matter of fact, Paul told Timothy, anyone who decides to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's going to be an intensification. As birth pains intensify closer to the due date, there is an intensification of fierce persecution in the world. So look at verse 9 with me again. It says, they will hand you over for persecution. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. You can pretend it's not happened. You can ignore what's going on around the world today, but there is a growing intensification of persecution. As we saw last summer, the number of martyrs in the past century outnumbers the total number of martyrs every century leading up to the past century. More people are losing their life for their faith than ever before. Last summer when we looked at that, that was before 21 Coptic Christians were killed on a video by ISIS. 21 Christian leaders, that was before so many of these villages and neighborhoods were destroyed by those who oppose everything the Christian church stands for. This past week, Tina shared with me an article where Muslims who were migrating to Italy by boat, threw 12 Christians overboard to their deaths because, simply because they were Christ followers. CNN reported that just this week, 15 Muslims were arrested when they arrived in Italy for this heinous crime against believers. We could go around the world But the truth is, persecution will intensify, and it will even intensify right where you and I live, and is intensifying. The gospel and Christian convictions confront people, and they don't like to be confronted. Look back at verse 10. It says that many will take offense. In other words, when when you're telling people, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's no way to the Father but by Him, and the way that we're to live our lives is by the principles and precepts of this book, that is going to confront and offend people. And listen, I know we need to be as sweet-spirited as we possibly can in communicating the gospel, but the bottom line is the gospel is going to confront people. They're not going to like it that you believe and live differently than them, especially when you're exclusive with it and saying Jesus is the only way. There are religious freedom restoration acts that seven years ago were supported even by the most liberal people in our nation that are trying to be passed in states and some have been passed in states. But today there is more opposition against that than ever before because religious freedom scares some people. It scares people into thinking that the church is a threat, the church is dangerous, the church is discriminatory. When really we're just saying, we want the freedom to live out our faith unhindered. But if you stand on 
Christian principles, biblical principles, you will be persecuted. If you're a businessman, businesswoman, you will be persecuted. If you stand for Christ in your school, you will be persecuted. Somebody's going to persecute you to some level, some degree. You're going to be made fun of somehow. There's going to be persecution for the faith. In your relationships, you'll pay a price when you take a stand for Christ. There's an intensification of persecution. Say, why is that? Well, because this world is dying. This world is deteriorating. We're the salt and light to preserve it until Christ comes again to make Christ known, to save as many and rescue as many people from the wreckage as we possibly can. But this world, the world as we know it, is coming to a conclusion. So people are sinfallen and people are wounded. Anyone here ever tried to help a wounded animal before? Anybody work maybe for a veterinary clinic, have pets, animals around the house? You try to help a wounded animal? You've probably discovered that there's no more dangerous animal than a wounded animal. You're trying to bring help. You're trying to bring uh, recovery. You're trying to, to help the animal to heal. And that yet that animal is hurt and it is injured and it is fearful of you. And so sometimes that, that dog that can rip you apart is that dog who has been wounded, that dog who has been injured. The same way people that we live around are wounded by sin. And many of them don't even know it and refuse to recognize it. And when we come with the only help and the only hope, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, they sometimes don't know how to respond but to even bite the hand that feeds them often. So we suffer persecution because the gospel is confrontational. And it says, you've got something wrong that needs to be fixed. How do we respond? How, how do we respond if, that's, if, we're, if there's an intensification of fierce persecution? How do we respond? First of all, keep in mind Romans 12 and verse 18 says, to live at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. In other words, as Christians, we know that the gospel confronts, but we're not necessarily going to look for a fight with people, right? As much as possible, we're to live at peace and make situations work out the best way we can without compromising the gospel, without compromising Christian conviction. Whenever we can keep peace in a relationship, even with an unbeliever, we need to try to work things out and make peace as much as we can. Not look for a fight in everything. However, secondly, not only do we need to live at peace, we need to remember Ephesians 6.12 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers of this present dark world that we live in. We need to realize that even though we want to love people, we want to hate sin and stand strong against it. And much of our battle needs to be spiritual warfare that's fought on our knees, not always with words to that individual, but words to our Lord Jesus Christ as we begin to pray for them, love them, and realize that we're involved in spiritual warfare all around us. Everything that's happening, the attack on the church that's happening in the world today is a spiritual battle against the devil himself. And so we need to get on our knees and on our face and begin to fight against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, realizing that God loves the sinner, he hates the sin, and he wants to save and redeem those that we sometimes call the enemy. I remember watching with my kids. They never outgrow it, and I never outgrow animation movies, but I remember watching Toy Story 3. It was going to be the last one. Didn't wait to watch Toy Story 3. But I got so frustrated when my favorite character in Toy Story became a bad guy. Anybody know who my favorite character in Toy Story is? Buzz! Buzz Lightyear. Tim Allen does a good voice for him, but, but Buzz Lightyear. 
he's the good guy, you know. He wants to be the hero all the time, wants to be the hero. But he gets kind of captured by the bad guys. And the kids, kids are following me on this illustration. The parents are going, we don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. Don't, don't pretend you don't watch. Um, but he gets reprogrammed to be the enemy. His thinking is all wrong. He's all messed up. It's interesting that, that Woody and the rest of the gang don't say, you know what, Buzz is the enemy now. We've got to destroy him. We've got to find a way to just bust him up, break him into pieces, and be done with that toy. No, they're saying we've got to figure out a way to reprogram him. We've got to flip the switch. He's got to change. We've got to get him back on our side. But see, that's the way we've got to look at this world that is persecuting us. That's, just as, as Buzz was being used as an instrument to destroy the, the, the good guys, you know. We've got to look and see that in this world, in a very real way, the devil himself has taken sin-fallen people and has them programmed against the church. We're not out to destroy them. We need to love them in Jesus' name so that the Spirit of God can get hold of their hearts and, and, and their hearts can get hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they can be reprogrammed. They can be transformed from the inside out by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's how we respond to those who are persecuting us. And it takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of dedication. And it takes a willingness to suffer persecution even at their hands. So remember Ephesians 6.12, but also rejoice. See, see, we're not winsome when we're nasty. We're not winsome when we're nasty. Some Christians just need to grab a Snickers, if you know what I mean. We get all nasty, we get all mean, and we're like, we're going to confront this, and we're coming after you, and we're going to make things... Listen, our goal is to win them, and we're not too winsome when we're nasty. Matthew... Chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Remember, we looked at the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know, blessed are you when they say all kinds of evil things against you. When they're persecuting you and saying evil things against you, rejoice and be exceedingly glad because they persecuted the prophets who were before you in the same way. Remember that? We're to rejoice. We, we see that passage applied in Acts chapter 5 when the, when the disciples, when, when Peter and John were caught and they were told not to preach the gospel and they just kept on sharing Jesus with everybody. They were taken and they were beaten, they were flogged for the sake of the gospel. It says that they went away crying, right? Now it says they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They went away rejoicing. And it says they didn't quit to share the name of Jesus. They practiced civil disobedience. Punish us if you have to, but we're going to keep on proclaiming the name of Christ. There will be an intensification of persecution. We need to respond in the right way. Secondly, keep this in mind. You can expect this. It's already happening. There's an increase in false prophets. There will be an increase, and there is now an increase in the number of false prophets in the world. He says in verse 11, many false prophets will rise up, and they will deceive many. And it may not, at this point, be the anti-religious crowd that's coming after us. It's not the anti-religious crowd, quite honestly, that concerns me most. It's the religious crowd that have a false message. They've always been around, but never so many as we see in the world today. Now, how, how do we recognize these false prophets? We could spend a lot of time talking about all the cults and all the false religions in the world and all the perversions of the Scriptures that are taking place, but you could basically sum it up in about two. I can sum it up with, with legalism and liberalism. 
Legalism, and li- legalism is where people are adding to the Scriptures. Liberalism is where they're taking away from the Scriptures. Legalism says, hey, let's add our own ideas and our own laws to the Bible. As a matter of fact, let's come up with new books. Let's come up with rules to protect us from breaking rules that protect us from breaking rules. That's going on in the world today. Various forms of works salvation. If you can be good enough, if you can do the right thing, if you can hold on to these five pillars, then you might be able to earn your way to heaven. Whether it's the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, or various forms of manipulation and and control of tyrannical religious leaders who use all kinds of tactics to manipulate and control people's hearts and minds to get them to do all kinds of things, or whether they say, you've got to do all these works, you've got to earn it, you've got to be good enough. Listen, the reason Christ died for my sins is because I could never be good enough. But the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us when we come to Christ by faith and begin to walk in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. It's not an outward confirmation that we need. See, we're trying so hard to change the world's behavior from the outside in, and it doesn't work that way, and it will never work that way. God changes people from the inside out. He gets hold of their hearts, and they'll be more like Jesus tomorrow than they were today but they're more like Him today than they were yesterday. So we need to avoid anything that adds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason Paul wrote the church at Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you to believe all this? And the Judaizers had come in and said, basically, you've got to fulfill all of the Old Testament law codes to a T if you're really a Christ follower. So there's legalism, adding to, adding to the message of the gospel. But there's also liberalism, where we begin to take away. It's not adding to, but it's taking away what is written. It, happened, it started in Genesis chapter 3 when the devil said, did God really say that? Did God really, is that what God really said? This is much more prominent today than legalism. It's denying the authority of Scripture. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be constant, in season, out of season. He said, Timothy, the time's going to come when people will not listen to you anymore. There's coming a day where people will gather to themselves false prophets, right? They will gather to themselves preachers who will scratch what their tickling ears want to hear. Now listen, if I say something that offends you, I will only apologize if it didn't come from the Word of God. If it came from the Word of God, there's no apology. That's the Spirit of God. That went directly from heaven to you. But he said, Timothy, they're going to, they want somebody to scratch, they want somebody to preach a feel-good message to make them feel good about who they are and where they're going. They want somebody to make them realize they can have their best life now and nothing else, right? Some of you can piece that one together a little bit later. Listen, my best life is not now. My best life is when your kingdom comes and your will is done. So there's... The taking away from scriptures and not standing on biblical principles. Treating, treating biblical principles like a buffet. Just kind of take what you want and leave what you don't want. Reject the attributes of God you don't like. God is a loving God, but those passages that talk about the wrath of God coming against the unjust, ah, if we don't like that, we'll just take that out of the Bible. Every time we turn around, another major denomination opens Pandora's box on the issue of marriage. Is marriage between one man, one woman for a lifetime? Absolutely. Why? Because that's what the Scripture says. 
But, you know, maybe, maybe Paul was a male chauvinist and we can just take that part out of the Bible. Maybe Jesus was just trying to cater to culture. Didn't he do that all the time anyway? Didn't Jesus come along and say, you know what, I just want to be sure I fit in with the culture? Absolutely not. Jesus was a revolutionary. He changed the culture. He turned the culture upside down, and so did his disciples. So when we begin to take away from scriptures, in an attempt to say, well, we've got to focus on the positive, and if we're going to win people, we've got to just go ahead and quit calling certain things sin. That's taking away from the scriptures. One of the most popular movements in our state today, a pastor is saying, you know what, we, we, we can't stand so hard on our doctrine. And, and he's popular for saying this most recently, you are more important than my view. And that sounds so spiritual and sweet. Man, we've got to love people and tell them, you are more important than my view. And listen, we, do, we have to love people, church. I don't want to get away from that. But the reason we love people, the reason people are important to us, it's not because they're more important than our view. It's because our view tells us that they're important. <laughs> it's our view that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God that tells us they were created in the image of God. So I value them, I love them, because my view says they were created in the image of God. And my view says, the Word of God says, that even though they sin, Christ died for their sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again. And so I value them, I love them, because my view says that Christ died for them and rose to give them life, eternal and abundant life. And so I don't say you are more important than my view. I say you are important because of my view, the uncompromising revelation of the Word of God. We had better know what we believe and be equipped to defend what we believe with the Word of God because false prophets are coming on in mass in the last days. And finally, there's an infiltration of the full proclamation of the gospel. Here's the good news in the story. Persecution, yes. False prophets, yes. But the gospel is still advancing. The blood of the martyr has been and always will be the seed of the gospel, the seed of the church. Verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end will be delivered. People are going to be delivered. That endurance there doesn't mean that you're holding on to it. It means he's holding on to you. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us because they were not of us. So the people who are disingenuous in their faith, it's going to be a little bit harder. Have you noticed the gray areas are disappearing in the world today with the polarization of, of, of worldviews and the clash of worldviews? People who just kind of want to claim Christianity but not be serious about it, those people are starting to kind of disappear a little bit. Then he says the good news. Look at verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. God's taking the gospel to the world, the good news, the gospel. Paul said, here's the gospel that 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures, meaning everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament came true concerning Messiah in Jesus Christ, just as God said it would. And that message of the Word of God will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Remember the Great Commission? We saw it last week. Remember we looked at Acts 1-8 as well. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What's Holy Spirit power for? To make you a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. The gospel is going to be preached to all nations. The end will come. 
It's being done by the church now, and even during the tribulation period, we see 144,000 Jewish missionaries. Those aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. 144,000 Jewish evangelists who go out and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. And we are seeing, listen, with all the negative uh, things that are coming into the world through mass media today, we are seeing the gospel go to all nations like never before. So we can remember that Acts 1.8 is sandwiched by Acts 1.7 and 1.11 where Jesus said, listen, it's not for you to know the day is the hour's time. Not for you to figure it all out. It's for you to get busy doing kingdom work and be ready when He comes. When we remember that, we quit arguing about, well, I'm pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib, pre-millennial. What? We quit arguing about all that and we say, I want to be found faithful when He comes. What must I be about? What do I want Him to find me doing when He comes? I reminded uh, Stan, since he's our resident game warden here this morning, of the Jerry Clower story, uh, the fishing story. You know, where the man goes fishing and the game warden goes with him because he wants to find out how he's been catching all these fish and they're sitting in the boat and the fellow lights the stick of dynamite, throws it out into the lake and boom! And the water, You know, I can't tell it like Clower, right? But I mean, fish come floating belly up and he's just raking them up and the game warden says, you can't do that. I'm going to have to find you. I'm going to have to arrest you. You can't do that. And while the game warden's arguing with him, he lights another stick of dynamite, hands it to the game warden and says, are you going to fish or argue? Well, sometimes, I'm not endorsing that, Stan. Um, Stan loves his pastor. He says, I come to church here because you don't do a lot of fishing and hunting, so I don't have to worry about catching you somewhere. Um, Listen, there are a lot of people that want to argue about last day things. They, they want to argue. Well, I believe Jesus is coming back at the beginning. I believe He's coming back. I believe this person is the Antichrist. Here's what's happening in the Middle East. Here's the European. The, they're trying to put it all together, but the people who are spending all their time trying to put it all together and line it all up are spending the least amount of time going and telling their friends and family and neighbors and children and grandchildren about who Jesus is and how they can come to faith in Him. They're spending the least amount of time coming into the church and saying, where can I serve? What's my ministry? How can I be prepared when He comes? And how can I prepare others for when He comes? When a ship is sinking, I don't want to be the one that's standing and arguing on a sinking ship about the structure of the ship and how long we have. Well, I believe we have three hours. I believe we have two hours and 45 minutes. Well, I believe this part will break up. Before. Listen, if the ship is sinking, I'm going to get as many people as I can in the lifeboats. And if we believe that the gospel is true and Jesus is coming again, rather than arguing about all the details, we're going to take as many people with us as we can. We're going to be busy getting people ready for the return of Christ. That means we better expect persecution and be ready to respond in a Christ-like manner. Expect false prophets and learn to discern what we believe and why do we, why do we believe the way we believe. Is it the Bible said so or we feel like it? Or it sounds good? Or it was quite emotional when the preacher said it? Or are we going to expect an exciting move of God and say, you know what? There's persecution. There are false prophets, but the gospel's going to the ends of the earth before Jesus returns. The gospel is going to all nations. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of reaching my family. I want to be a part of reaching my neighborhood. I want to be a part of reaching the nations. I want to be a part of reaching the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when he returns, when he returns, I'll be found faithful. Would you bow your heads with me?